created the interest to ask more questions. And what I found I got a little into, well, way into, was finding ways to learn something that made me realize, wow, my way of thinking isn't the only way. Whoa. And that started <laughs> to become so appealing. You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Jennifer Johnson is a regulated Canadian immigration consultant from the Boating region within the Robinson-Huron Treaty Territory of the Anishinaabe people, more commonly known as the City of Sault Ste. Marie. Jennifer's career is dedicated to providing essential services that serve the greater good for all. Inspired by her own experiences studying and working abroad, she developed an understanding of cultural identity and the challenges of adaptation faced by newcomers. This insight led her to open an immigration company, offering services to employers and foreign nationals while providing intercultural skills training for equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. She is the CEO of Intercultural AVEC Immigration Inc., otherwise known as ICA, and the president of JJ Intercultural Consulting Inc. These companies are currently located at 372 Albert Street East in Sault Ste. Marie. Jennifer also holds a Master of Education degree in Adult Learning and Global Change from the University of British Columbia, and she's a qualified administrator of the Intercultural Development Inventory. Her profound commitment to inclusivity and the Northern Ontario lifestyle drives her as an outdoor enthusiast, eager to create an environment where everyone can enjoy the richness of the region. Jennifer, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Great to be here. (laughs) Awesome. So I know that intro is a little bit formal. It's got your educational credentials, the company that you've built and that sort of thing. But as a local Suite, a local business professional, tell the community who Jennifer Johnson is. I was thinking about this. I expected you to ask this question. It's like when you go for an interview and you have to be ready for that (laughs) first one and it can throw you off. In expecting that question, it made me think how validating it is to have somebody say, come and tell us about you. Yeah. I really welcome that was really affirming for me. I'm from the Sioux originally, but I had to leave to really appreciate it. So like many, I out-migrated for education and exploring the world and came back with a fresh perspective. It took me, I'd say, 20 years to get really clear about what I really wanted to do. Not unlike young professionals all around the world. I would say it clicked in for me about eight years ago so that the summary of the journey of getting to the point where I wanted to put my time and effort and my heart into ICA. Where did you travel? I was reading that in your bio. You mentioned it just now. I've done some traveling around the world myself, but it's not about me. So what countries have you visited? I started in English-speaking countries because that was more familiar. I spent some time in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. And then when I started to get a bit bolder, I ventured into Latin America. And then I'd say with recruitment of international students, that exposed me to Asia and Africa. So it's hard to nail it down by country, but I don't want to ever stop exploring that. Unlimited number of places to visit. I feel the same way. I feel like I barely scratched the surface of travel. On previous episodes of the podcast, I talked about my experiences in Greece and Turkey. And of course, Tracy and I have done some traveling down to Mexico. Loved it. Loved all of those locations. And it really does change you. It really shows you a different part of yourself. People hearing me say that probably thought I was about to say it shows you a different part of the world. It shows you how other people live. But as you travel and you go to these different places and get exposed to these different cultures, you really learn more about yourself and your old worldviews and how you interact with other people. I know it's really cliche 
cliche thing to say, but you really do come back a different person than when you left, depending on how long you were gone, depending on where you went, depending on the experiences you went through. It's different for everyone. I find that super relevant to your career as an immigration consultant. It's very useful to have that personal experience with your professional experience. It shaped me big time, actually. Yeah. It created the interest to ask more questions. And what I found I got a little into, well, way into, was finding ways to learn something that made me realize, wow, my way of thinking isn't the only way. Whoa. And that started to become so appealing. So now I'm primed to search for those opportunities to just stretch open my mind a little bit more. I was exposed to it in the early part of my life through travel. And I remember coming back, reintegrating and feeling like an alien. In In Canada. Yeah. (laughs) People didn't understand me. I didn't understand them. It was like we were on different frequencies. Right. And it took some time to process all the things I had been exposed to and learned and how my mind had been reshaped in those experiences. Can you give me some examples of that? Oh, this is funny. Sure, let's do it. I spent some time in Ecuador doing a youth program under the federally funded program at that time, which was called Canada World Youth. Okay. And it was a remote community. We spent three to four months there. And it was really intense learning, volunteering, that kind of a program. It was experiential learning. And when I came back, my family was so happy I came back alive. (laughs) And they all met me in Toronto. And my mom, she was super cool. I booked us a Green Day concert. So when you come back into Canada, we'll meet you in Toronto and we'll go together as a family to this concert. Concert. She yeah. was so proud because she was thinking she was so cool, right? <laughs> For booking a Green Day concert. <laughs> the experience that was so surprising to me was that I couldn't handle all of the loud noises of the concert. It was like oh, wow. something I would have been so pumped to do a year before, but now I wasn't seeking that kind of stimulation anymore. I was seeking inside myself more. So I wasn't phased. I wasn't too impressed. Not because Green Day is an epic band, but because I just wasn't there at that moment. I wasn't seeking that at the moment. Sounds like you're finding more satisfaction from stillness and calm than like loud experiences. When I was driving around alone in Greece along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea heading out to the Temple of Poseidon, I remember there was definitely, well, except for the very strong winds at the temple, apart from that nature, there was a stillness about it that I really, really liked that I felt like, especially because it was a solo travel thing, there was a sense of peace to it. And maybe you experienced some of that when you were traveling and it sounds like that was quite different from juxtaposing that over like this loud coming back home to Canada Green Day concert situation. Yeah. And I'd say that example's less about the incredible cultural differences, more about environmentally, I was in a very quiet place right. in the mountains and coming back to the metropolis of Toronto. Oh, wow. The mountains of which country? Ecuador. Ecuador. Yes. You mentioned that a moment ago. Yeah. Maybe we should go. <laughs> should definitely that good. I'm going to sound so ignorant. That's South America, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like I mentioned, we've been to South America, but like we've been wanting to go to more places in South America than the little that we've seen. We just haven't had an opportunity yet. We've been really busy. But What country's next on the list? I guess that's really up to Tracy. I just pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really liked Mexico when we went. I'd love to go back, but I don't know. I haven't been anywhere else but Mexico. Yeah, maybe you can give us some advice on that. <laughs> One of my favorite spots in Mexico is in the state of Oaxaca. Oh, okay. It's like the west, southwest part of the country. And in that state, you can find more quiet, chill beach locations that are off the beaten path. Hmm. And above all, my favorite spot there was a little beach called Zipolite. <laughs> you sound like you say that like a local. Well, I say it because I love it. Yeah. I recommend it to everybody. There might be a million people there now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to try to say it, but you can spell it out or text it to me and then we'll Google it. Yeah. That sounds cool. <laughs> 
Tracy and I just figured out our next vacation destination from this episode. I understand that you seem very well traveled and there's personal story behind that. But beyond that, perhaps in the context of Sault Ste. Marie as a town or in the larger context of bringing people to Canada as a country, what was that motivation for picking that industry? That really started when I look back during the time when I was working in employment services. What I was noticing was that there were more challenges for newcomers searching for work, accessing services. And it's funny how because of someone's interests, I was gravitating towards clients who had this exotic story of some kind. Right. So I was the one after some time that my colleagues would say, oh, we're going to book you with Jennifer. Just because <laughs> they understood I was going to get right into it. So that natural interest in what's different from me just pushed me in the direction of having more contacts with those who were new to the city. And I could see their struggles more. Furthermore, I got into international student recruitment. I did that in the northern part of BC for a few years okay. and then managed to make my way back to Sioux College and did the same kind of work managing the international student office there. And what was the same at both institutions that I noticed was when students were coming in, they often didn't expect the incredible adjustment they had to make. They had the logistics part as the primary function. I got to figure this out. Where am I going to stay? I need a job. The survival type of things. And what's underestimated is how much emotional aftermath there is when you have a complete life makeover. So I saw the struggle, like what is going on? How come I don't feel like I made the right decision? Usually in that period of three to six months after arriving. And then on the same token, on the staff side, both of these institutions are considered rural. You know, they're smaller public institutions. So it could be a different story in bigger metropolis areas, but the staff and the professors were also adjusting themselves because there were larger groups of students from different places having different expectations of the classroom, and it made it more work for the professors and the staff to figure out, how do I create common ground and understand really what this student or client needs from me and serve them while the adjustment was equally on their shoulders? So I started to do a little bit of training, kind of not training in an intense education way, but lunch and learn. Let's talk about a few things that are interesting about India and how those things are different when somebody comes to Canada. And just opening up more conversations, taking the time, creating a space for people to talk about what they're experiencing that's different from what they've known before. And that seemed to catch a lot of interest. That gave me that little fire like, oh, people like talking about this too? Awesome. Was in those early stages, I started up a side hustle with a business partner doing some intercultural training. And it was mainly in the context of international student recruitment because that was our world. And then I carried on with that kind of thinking at Sioux College. Oh, how can we make it easier for all these people with different ways of thinking to be together and communicate? The thing that was happening locally at that time was a large influx of international students because of the work that was being done at the college to recruit them. Right. I think equally so at the university as well. Yes. And then the services that they need for immigration, they weren't well established in the Sioux. At one point, there was no local immigration consultant for them to go to. So it was more of a, there's a gap. I feel that I want to help fill that gap. And I not only want to give the services that are needed, but also with the approach of, okay, I know there's a lot going on for yeah. you right now. It's not just you need this paperwork done, but how do you feel right now? Yeah. How stressed are you? What can I do to take your stress from here to here? So that's how it came to be. Yeah, I definitely 
resonate with that when you are in a profession where people have this misconception that your primary role is just to fill out legal paperwork, which I've done more than my fair share of that in my career. You start to discover that there are very real human stories behind all that dry paperwork. It's not just an immigration application. And that's an area of law I've never practiced in. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I can imagine on the surface, you know, you're filling out all these complex documents to get newcomers into the country and that kind of thing. But then beyond that, as you say, there's a certain level of emotional aftermath that people are experiencing. There's an adjustment, maybe not all of it necessarily positive, unfortunately. That actually ties into one of the other questions we had on how can community members here in the Sioux contribute to making newcomers feel more welcome and part of the community? And before you answer that, I know that when I moved here from the GTA, I wasn't moving here from another country. I already had all the same socio-cultural norms shaped into my personality from being born and raised in this country. So I can imagine it's much different for someone who's moving to the country completely new. But even as someone just coming from a big city and moving to a small town that I'm not from, even I experienced a little bit of an adjustment. I want to say it wasn't that much, to be honest. It wasn't as bad as some people made it seem, which was a pleasant surprise. But I can imagine my story doesn't necessarily reflect everybody's story. So getting back to the question, let's say you're a local and you want to make newcomers feel welcome. How can members of the community make people feel that way? First of all, I want to say there are a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. Amazing. Stories like that just warm up my heart. Some examples are neighbors moving in next door and somebody's, you know, do you have enough towels? Basic things to get households together. I see a lot of people really pulling together. And also I see landlords helping out international students or newcomers with other things outside of the housing. It's not their responsibility, but they're doing it because they care. Being like super neighborly. Ah. Yeah. So a lot of it is happening. And I think celebrating that would just put a magnifying glass on it to show it's already largely happening. Yeah. And that encourages others to be like, oh, I yeah. could do that too. I got three bikes in my garage. Nobody's using it. Maybe that guy needs it to get to school every day. Yeah. We're having conversations like this where people get to discover that that's happening and then putting those conversations on social media. <laughs> hear those often and I want them to be heard more. Yeah. For sure. And then to look at your question in another way, the question is how can community members contribute to making a more welcoming community? There's something pretty fundamental about power position of somebody who lives in Sault Ste. Marie, who's part of the dominant culture here, and the power position of somebody coming in as an outsider. Right. So understanding that incredible difference in access to resources, not only physically, but cultural resources, information, who to talk to for what, all of that contributes to somebody from here having a great advantage. So acknowledging that advantage, first of all, is I think what opens the door to natural welcoming behaviors. Yeah. Oh, I get it. I have so much. It's not about, oh, I have 45 towels in my linen closet and I won't <sighs> give two to my neighbor. <laughs> it's about recognizing I have an incredible privilege Yeah. to know this community so intimately. It's like we don't even have to think about what's the first step if we want to find a contractor. Yeah. I call my friend and he tells me three guys I should call. Yeah. But it's easy for me. It's effortless. But even something small like finding a service needed can be an incredibly stressful experience when you don't know where to start. One of the ladies who works at my office has an elementary school aged son and her son got sick and she's new to the country. Imagine 
imagine the stress not knowing what's the first step to take and how much is this going to cost? How do I get to the doctor's office? I don't have a car. Wow, there's so many layers there. Meanwhile, a local person who has a family network here, they'd have their kid at the clinic in an hour. Right. So I think that recognition of how much more privilege we have being from here is a place to start. Yeah, those comments remind me actually of when I first moved here, very, very shortly after my neighbors across the street were just so helpful and friendly without even really even knowing me at all. For example, like if I went back to the GTA for a little while, just kind of bouncing between both locations, they would know that Ryan's out of town. So I would see on my little home security cameras that my neighbor across the street would come by and just like take care of the property, maybe cut the grass, maybe put the garbage bin at the end of the driveway when it was garbage day, stuff like that. And I was like, whoa, that is just not something I was accustomed to growing up in the GTA. It just never happened. But I figured, okay, I guess that's just like how people are in Sault Ste. Marie. So I feel pretty good about my decision to move. So yeah, I think that neighborliness that you're talking about, it has a profound impact on people. The other thing I want to add to that, which is a little nuanced, but yeah. I like to go to the next level on these juicy questions. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. It takes so much courage when you're new in a place to reach out and break into community. Finding the way, finding the people, having the courage to put your chin up and walk into a networking event, for example. That's already hard for the average person, but it's doubly or triply, quadruply hard for somebody who's from an outside community. So I would say to add something to the question of what can the community do, I'd say extend the hand, extend the invitation first. That's part of understanding we have the privilege of it's easy for us to walk into the public event and know what we're supposed to do at a community event. A newcomer might not go because they don't know how am I supposed to act there. But if the neighbor says, come with me, we're going to go down to that thing together. Extending the invitation is so important, but it's actually working both ways. If the neighbor says, why don't you come over for tea? It should be a yes. Took him so much courage to say, come into my home and have my tea from my country. You got to say yes. You got to do your part to be a little bit uncomfortable as well and go to places that you wouldn't usually go. Gotcha. I had an interesting experience. I went to the Sikh temple a year or two ago. There is one in the Sioux? There is one. I didn't even know. I'm not Sikh, but like I didn't even know that one existed in the Sioux. I had the invitation to go. So I thought, okay, someone extended the hand. I said, take my own advice. Say yes. Go for it. And I was incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) Right from the start. Walking in, I didn't know, do I go upstairs or downstairs? Meanwhile, if I walked into a church that I'm more familiar with, even though there's not an arrow saying go this way, intuitively I know where to go. And I left a little bit early because I met my max in what my brain could accept as a new information for today. They said, stay, we're going to have some food afterwards. I bowed out because I just couldn't take anything else new or now. It was already a complete new experience. And I sat in my car and I was like, wow, that was hard. And that was just one hour of my life. Imagine somebody coming to the Sioux and having to do that every place they go. Yeah. I've been following some of the stories lately in the media about Canada in terms of changing immigration dynamics, changing demographics in the country. What we've seen in the last few years is on average about 400 to 500,000 people a year coming into Canada, becoming new Canadians. And at the same time, while that's happening, based on the headlines, we're also seeing record levels of out-migration from the country for various reasons that are what I find to be quite compelling reasons. The out-of-control housing market, the fact that just buying groceries here in Canada is like twice as expensive as America. Everything as far as opportunity and economic conditions seems to be working against the average everyday Canadian. And still, we're seeing more and more people come here. Maybe I'm speculating, but maybe they aren't aware of what the economic climate is in Canada. And then they arrive and they find out it's quite different from what they thought it was going to be. But you work in the industry a lot more than I do in that front. So maybe you can clarify 
if there's any truth to these sort of impressions that I know I have and I feel like a lot of people have now. I want to start by telling a story. <laughs> Go ahead, tell a story. When I moved to northern BC yeah. for my career, I did some research about the region, but I didn't actually believe what I was seeing. Oh, a house costs that much in Fort St. John? That can't be right. So I get there and indeed it was as expensive as the research showed. And I had this experience of walking out of the grocery store in my first evening in town with less than what I needed to eat because I was not paying a dollar twenty nine a pound for bananas. I right. just wasn't doing it. It took me some time before I was ready to shell it out. Even being Canadian, that felt like a lot to me. So I get it. To get back to your question about the messaging around life in Canada, there are some things that I noticed in the international student recruitment industry that I could lean on to provide some insight. I noticed that those sales reps, the individuals meant to promote their institutions overseas, they often promote Canada in an obviously positive way. They want students to come. The things that I've seen them use in terms of data to support that would be our social systems, the mat leaves, pat leaves that are available to families. Those kind of general messages about the social net, those are used, I think, to create the message that, oh, it's great here. In fairness, there's some decent information being shared about the cost of accommodation, the pretty critical factor for a student when they're budgeting. So there's, I think, some school reps giving good information about what's the true cost of living in the communities their institutions are in. But that's not the case for everybody. So I'd say there's certainly some misinformation given along the way for the purpose of making the sale. Yeah. I hate to say that, but it's a thing. There's a business incentive for some people to get as many newcomers, students, international students into the country as possible because every time another person does that, someone is profiting from that. And maybe the extremely high immigration rates we're seeing is more reflective of the business efforts that are being made by a lot of these reps that you're talking about. I can't confirm nor deny that. (laughs) (laughs) There are some immigration policies in Canada that are appealing as well compared to what somebody might be able to access if they immigrated to another country. Gotcha. So one of those things is the opportunity to apply for an open work permit after graduating from a public institution. That gives somebody a real head start in the labor market. So for example, it's not all on the shoulders of economic interests of businesses. Yeah. Of course, Canada is looking to attract more people. They're doing their part too with some policy. Yeah. And I mean, as challenging as the situation is, it might just provide enough motivation for all levels of government to get serious about building more housing in Canada. The fact that there are high levels of immigration right now should motivate them, whether it's at the municipal level or the provincial or the federal, to meet the demand for, for homes. Maybe the solution isn't, let's warn everybody that Canadian economic conditions are extremely harsh. Let's look at it a different way and do what needs to be done to make housing affordable, to make everyday necessities like groceries affordable again. And then once we're able to achieve that, then increase immigration even more and give that wonderful standard of living to even more and more people. Maybe I'm describing a utopia that is not going to be seen in Canada for a while, but that seems to me to be the ideal solution to the climate right now when it comes to housing and immigration in Canada and that kind of thing. And I understand this is a nationwide issue. It's not just Sault Ste. Marie. Well, obviously, we're seeing it in the context of Sault Ste. Marie because there's so many international students that form part of the community here in this town. To a large extent, I feel like it applies across the country. And it raises the question, I don't have a strong opinion about it, but whose responsibility is it? Right. Should it be the government's responsibility or is that a place for the private sector? 
to step in. Right. I've always had an interest in this stuff. And I've mentioned in a previous episode of the podcast that I did my undergraduate degree in economics. And I've always been fascinated about how we use the monetary system and, and our resources to take care of people in this country. And obviously, in the last few years, the country hasn't been doing a very good job of that. But it wasn't always like this. It used to be different. And it's just right now, you know, it is what it is. Jennifer, I think our viewers are probably also curious to know your thoughts and predictions about how you foresee the future of Sault Ste. Marie's cultural landscape developing over the coming years and perhaps even decades? There's a, a few things coming to my mind. Actually, these factors helped me have the confidence that opening an immigration company in Sault Ste. Marie was going to be something that would be sustainable in the long run. I'd say because our two post-secondary institutions, they're not going anywhere and they're investing in recruiting international students and those families. We hope many of them stay. For that reason, I would say that the number of newcomer families is likely to continue increasing. That's not a big surprise. What I'm starting to see, and I hope it continues also, is the establishment of businesses that are owned by newcomers. There's a few new shops, a few new restaurants, and that's a whole area of immigration that I think is underserved in Sault Ste. Marie. I say there's a great opportunity for investors, and there's a package of immigration programs intended to support foreign investors to become permanent residents in Canada. I think that that is an untapped opportunity. We're starting to see it with some restaurants and some shops, but I think that will continue to diversify the economy in the community. And then the other thing in terms of what's the cultural makeup of our future Sault Ste. Marie, I think that's probably largely determined by the key institutions, including a couple of key employers. We know that the institutions here are recruiting their students from a couple of target countries. Well, that tells us we're going to have a larger number of Filipino families coming to the Sioux, Indian families, Latin American families. I think those are largely the regions of the world. Right. There are others, but those are some of the big markets these days. Yeah. So that tells us that in some time, those families have kids, those kids stay. Imagine. Yeah. And then it becomes an intergenerational cultural development in the Sioux where people decades from now, someone saying, oh yeah, like my grandfather came to Sault Ste. Marie as a student and then got this degree and then started working here. And then I was born all these years later. And like, yeah, stories are being written right in front of us. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Jennifer, when I was preparing your bio to read into the mic earlier and I was going through your credentials and I read that you are a qualified administrator with the Intercultural Development Inventory. Now, once again, I'm showing my ignorance. I've never heard of the Intercultural Development Inventory. I don't know what that is. I also don't know what a qualified administrator does. And I'm guessing some people listening or watching this episode also don't know that. So can you explain those concepts? Sure. I always like to start with something light, but I'll get into the nitty gritty. Okay. It's kind of like I can get inside your head. <laughs> It's scary for some people. What do you mean? The inventory is a psychometric assessment okay. of one's ability to negotiate and communicate and be effective in an environment where there's a lot of difference. Oh. It's giving each person an actual score. What is your intercultural skill level? So we use that when we prepare corporate training programs because it gives us an insight into the group as a whole. We can see the scores of everybody. They're private. I couldn't tell your score to Tracy, but as a group, I can say, this group of 20 people on average scored around here. And then the design of the learning experience hinges on how little or much resistance is there mm. to the idea of working in a complex environment where somebody has an idea that's different than mine. Mm. So it's the foundation of all of the corporate training that we do. And to be a qualified administrator, there's a training and a licensing process. There's a code of ethics mm. and it allows us access to the platform to issue the assessments and to collect the reports. It gives access to mass data that has been 
been collected with that tool over time. It's making its way into Canada, like not yesterday, but in the long term it was developed and largely used across the U.S. And so now it's being kind of imported as a service and as a tool in Canada, in many cases in corporate settings or in institutions where they're seeing the need to not only do the training, but give the participants something concrete that they can use to measure their progress. So you could reassess yourself a year or two from now to see, did I get any better at this or not? So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's training to enable people to become more cohesive in groups that have vastly different cultural differences between the members of the group? Or have I misunderstood that? That's one of the goals. Okay. You took it to a few steps later. Okay. The tool itself just gives us data about each person, what's inside their head in terms of how agile, what's their skill level already. Okay. And then what our service is, is we design the training and the change management plan for an organization according to what their goals are. If their goal is, I want to create more cohesion on my management team, then we design the training with that in mind. One of the critical things that we do in the early stages of our relationship with a corporate client is to find out how clear are you about your goals and does what we offer actually help you to achieve those goals? Can we measure the outcome? Hmm. And it's kind of a splashy thing these last five or 10 years, EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion, and a lot of organizations are putting a lot of money into it. What we believe, my training partner and I, is that it comes down to each individual first, knowing thyself. So we do a lot of work in the beginning in the way of coaching, personal, private conversations that happen, allowing each person to realize, oh yeah, I do do that. Okay. That's the starting point. You can't make change without that kind of self-awareness. And then once a whole group has cued into how important it is to self-regulate and be self-aware, then we start working on something that brings a group together. Hmm. We always start with the individual, then move towards group. I had no idea this existed. Wow. And how do you find the response is from employers who have participated in these services? Well, I would say I'd put them into two categories. Employers who are clear about their goals, then they can make more out of the tool in our training. Employers who want to give it a one-time training to their group, there's some value in that, but there's more value when the engagement is long-term with a clear goal at the end. Hmm. Some of the things we hear from the individuals is, this is the best one. In that coaching session, we talked about things I don't even talk about with my wife. (laughs) Sounds like it gets pretty personal. It gets super juicy. Because we're talking about some things that we might associate shame with. Okay. We're taught that it's bad to have a bias. However, our brains need to have biases in order to compute all the information they receive. Yeah. So just sitting down with somebody to say, oh my, I think I judged that person. Oh, feels so good to say it in a safe place and then also realize, well, how can I do a little bit better next time? Yeah. I'm not going to stop judging people forever for the rest of my life. That's impossible, actually. I think we have to use some judgment and some discernment. Yeah. But starting to use that skill more intentionally to achieve a goal. That's what we're trying to develop the skill for. Yeah, I think it's unrealistic to walk around society believing that if you have a preconceived notion about something or somebody, you've somehow committed some kind of thought crime, (laughs) for lack of a better expression. It sounds like maybe it's more productive to just, as you say, create a safe environment for people to just say what they're thinking and then try to reevaluate their beliefs about other people or about other cultures or about whatever it is that their preconceived notions were so they can speak openly and then have more productive conversations. And what you're describing now is a common task needed to move somebody from one point in their learning to the next. Yeah. And largely the mass data shows that the large number of people who are professionals fall into a certain range. And so the task for people at that learning stage is often self-awareness, but that's actually not the thing to learn for everybody. Somebody's score shows that they 
they are more resistant and they're not ready for self-awareness yet. Actually, their job is to start to see what's similar between me and my neighbor comes from another country. One of the earlier stages in the development of intercultural skill and somebody at a higher range usually is quite aware of their biases already and they're working on managing how to lead others in that direction. Right. So there's really different learning tasks that we have depending on where our skill is at already. I feel like a lot of this content wouldn't only be useful in a workplace environment. It sounds like it might have some value in a school environment. Like, has there been any interest from the education system and from schools to have this type of training exposed to a younger audience? Or no, is it more like just focus on like workplace cohesion? Well, there's a certain grade level of literacy required in order for the test to be effective. So I haven't yet worked with young children with that tool. We do have a version of it intended for international students and then another more comprehensive version that's for corporations to use with their management team. So there's one which is more thorough and the other one which is meant to make the tool accessible to hundreds and thousands and large groups of students coming in who need a little bit of perspective or we think they need a little bit of perspective coming in. Yeah. I remember when I was a law firm owner down in the GTA, I found that, I wouldn't say this happened most of the time. I would say it happened occasionally. You would have clients reach out to the company and ask for specific lawyers to be assigned to their case based on that lawyer's race or gender or whatever. I guess that's an industry where with some exceptions, the client is always right. So whatever they're asking for, you generally try to accommodate them. So I found that when we talk about biases and preferences and prejudices, it's not just restricted to workers working together inside the same organization. We also see it with patients having preferences about who their doctor is or legal clients having preferences about who their lawyer is. And, you know, as a business, you try to just make the client happy. But it was a reality that we had to acknowledge because it was being presented to us, albeit by a small number of clients. Generally speaking, most people just didn't care or exhibit any kind of preference. Or if they had one, they kept it to themselves. But it was a reality of doing business. And I think had I known that this kind of resource is available, this kind of training is available, I might have considered it for my team. But now I know. I imagine I'll own another company in the future and I'll have a team again. So this is part of my growing process. (laughs) What I'm hearing when you talk about that situation where clients requesting a certain lawyer because of their ethnic background, I can see it from two sides. I can understand how as an organization you want to provide services of equal quality to all of your clients, no matter what's the personal history of the lawyer. Yeah. Nonetheless, on the other hand, the client side, I see it with my own eyes. We have a few of our team members who aren't born in Canada and they can connect with our clients who have the same country origin in a minute, yeah. in a second. They just get each other. And the client's usually relieved to know that, oh, there's something familiar here, even though what I'm about to do, which is launch an application for something that's so important to me. Oh, I've got somebody who knows me. So there's incredible value in having that familiar cultural context. Sure. Yeah. So there's no right or wrong in the work that we do. It's a matter of perspectives and knowing one's own perspective at the same time as exploring the other's yeah. perspective. It's infinite learning. For sure. Yeah. It's abundantly clear that when people have this shared, maybe it's a shared language or shared worldview, they can connect much faster. I wasn't clear when I was describing my experiences. To a greater or lesser extent, you would see some clients of a ethnic background that was outside Canada and they would prefer to have a lawyer that was not their own ethnicity. It was like more like a Eurocentric lawyer because there was this presumption that they were going to get better quality services from someone who was not from their own country. So I think there was undoubtedly a certain degree of bias against one's own culture. But I will say again that I rarely saw it. I saw it sometimes. I'm happy to say that what I did see more often the 
case was what you're describing, where somebody is actually like saying, hey, do you have anyone that speaks my language? English is my second language or whatever. Those solicitor-client relationships were just so seamless and so smooth. Like you were talking about, there's a large influx of people from South America coming to Canada. And many, many years ago, I was getting calls all the time. Like, do you have any lawyers that speak Spanish? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> so I eventually I was like, I need to find someone who does. This is going to be great for business <laughs> if I can. And I imagine I'll continue to run into stuff like that, more diverse Canada gets. Assuming I continue to do business in Canada, that's a whole other conversation. Tracy and I have looked at like investor visas to America and stuff like that. And I don't know, I have my own views on the economic future of Canada versus America, but I don't want to get into that topic. I know we're talking about immigration, we're talking about the economy, but that's a much longer conversation for me anyway. Who knows where this power couple will go? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. We'll figure it out. <laughs> we got time. We're in our mid thirties. I had this incredibly resounding experience to help me understand my white privilege. I was in Vietnam. I was recruiting students for Northern Lights College. I was there with Josie, who is now my business partner. And she's originally from China. We went together to meet a prospective recruitment partner in their office on site for the very first time. So we didn't have a longstanding relationship yet. When we walked in, the owner of the company came straight to me, shook my hand confidently and ignored Josie. Didn't look at her, didn't acknowledge her. And both of us were coming down in the elevator afterwards looking at each other saying did that just happen <laughs> i just observe him completely i don't even know i can't Disregard. speak on behalf of this person yeah it was what just happened there it changed my awareness of how being from North America and being white yeah. is opening doors for me that aren't being opened for others who aren't white and who aren't from North America. We had a similar experience at Home Depot yesterday. Oh, okay. I know that's where Tracy's mind went. Yep, I was <laughs> so thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to get this design consultation sorted out where we want to change our front door and we have to get it specifically ordered, specifically built and everything else. And the consultant at the store was almost entirely directing all of his communication with Tracy. <laughs> I didn't even notice it. To be clear, it did not register at all while I was there. It was after we got home. Tracy's like, did you notice that this was, and I was like, I guess it was. I wasn't thinking about it, but now that you're telling me about it, I guess I notice it now. But it was just yesterday. That's the first story that came to my head when you were telling me that story. <laughs> Maybe it's been happening more than I think. And it's just been something I've just gotten so accustomed to that I don't even see it anymore. It's like, eh, whatever, it doesn't bother me. Maybe it shouldn't be that way. Maybe the world should be better than that, but I don't lose any sleep over <laughs> I've had some interesting conversations with Josie about what is a microaggression. And so is that an example of a microaggression or not? And we've landed on something for now. We're always learning and always yeah. adjusting how we work with people based on how much more we are learning to. But we've landed on if this moment didn't offend you, then it may not be a microaggression. Yeah. However, if there was somebody who observed it, Tracy, who was offended by the behavior of somebody toward you, then it might still fall into the category of a microaggression. Oh, wow. So it gets a bit complicated. Hmm. You know what it makes me think of, actually, and this is less of a race conversation and more of like a microaggressions motivated by other grounds, other traits and characteristics, specifically gender. I would have lots of corporate business meetings down at the firm back in the day, so to speak. I don't have a business partner anymore right now. I mean, aside from Tracy, back then my business partner was a woman and we're looking to purchase services from a supplier. Usually the person they would send to talk to us because we would usually be a pretty big account. They would send a man to speak with us. And usually that man, whoever they were, would direct most of his communication to me. When we were very early in our career, I didn't notice it happening, but my business partner told me that she was noticing it. And then after she brought it to my attention, whenever we had similar meetings, I would make it a point to draw the other person's attention to the fact that 
there's two people in the room and just small comments like, well, I can't make that decision alone. You have to ask my business partner or whatever, stuff like that. And then redirect the attention because a lot of people don't even know that they're doing stuff like that. And it doesn't take much of a nudge to snap them out of it. Like the most delicate nudge will do it. And she really appreciated that I would do that. Made her feel a lot better. And yeah, it doesn't take a lot to address situations like that tactfully. And we usually got what we wanted out of those meetings. So all's well that ends well. (laughs) Sounds like a beautiful example of an act of inclusion. Yeah. And I want to tie it back to something we talked about earlier when it comes to who has more power in that moment. Yeah. I would say, given the situation that you outlined, because of your gender, you had more power at that moment. So it was actually in your hands to make the move to say, oh, you should ask my business partner about that. It's really the responsibility of the one who's got the difference, even small in power. Hi everyone, it's me, Tracy again. We hope you've been enjoying this episode. If you're a content creator, real estate agent, or really just about anybody who embraces the power of great content, then I encourage you to visit tracyalberta.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y and Alberta like the province.com. On my website, you can learn about my and Ryan's editing services, film production, aerial photography, and much more. Okay, back to the episode. I'm quite sensitive about gender inequality. It's one of those things that okay. I'm in a phase now where I'm noticing it. Yeah. I was blind to it or I didn't care to notice. Now I am noticing it more and just doing my own processing on that, learning new strategies for those little micro callouts. Right. Like the nudges you called them that does yeah. show somebody oh yeah sure right yeah 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 you're noticing it more these days what brought about that change lately in your life likely because i do a lot of work with equity material right front of mind or top of mind and when we talk about equity it's often not only about ethnicity or national culture there's so many layers we call it intersectionality my identity has this canadianness all these factors it's multi-dimensional so i want to make sure that it's to help people take the focus away from i'm from this country so therefore i'm like that oh no it's way more than that. Yeah. But thanks for your question. I think the reason why I'm noticing it more would be as I advanced in my career in post-secondary education into management level positions, I had more responsibility and I had to learn a thing or two about how to negotiate the projects that I was working on, advance the priorities that I was there to advance and just scratch my head a few times when I didn't find that there was ease when I was trying to move my ideas forward. It took me time to learn the skill to negotiate in what's largely a man's world. Right. And I got to be honest, there's some pointed moments where like, I'm still kind of mad. <laughs> I see it in business partnerships that as a small business, there's so many opportunities to do great things through partnership. And it's happened to me on more than one occasion where there's an early partnership where I think, oh, this is going great. We have a common ground. There's a common goal here. And then here's an example. In a discussion with a prospective partner, I noticed he was cutting me off. Oh, wow. Mid-sentence. And finally, I thought, what am I going to do with this? I'm annoyed. I'm hurt. I'm can see it happening in real life. And so I thought, oh, what am I going to do about this? I can see this is happening to me right now. I've got the opportunity to take an action. And I just waited after a few interruptions. And I said, what I was trying to say a few minutes ago, let me get back to that. And I carried on. And that little nudge made me feel empowered because it was me advocating for myself, but in an appropriate way of this partnership, which I hope goes somewhere. I don't want to cause ill feelings with the relationship at the early stages, but I really wanted that person to know. Also, 
so I have something to say, sir. Yeah. So Jennifer, I don't want the tone of the whole episode to be all like dark and dismal and like about prejudices and microaggressions and all this other stuff. I also want to visit the lighter side of things, some more maybe uplifting parts of what you've seen. So my next question is, can you share any success stories where you've witnessed positive outcomes regarding cultural integration and diversity? One of the things we like to do in our work is to model it first from our own learning because we're not experts on everything multicultural. We don't know everything about every country. It's more a matter of having learning mindset. That's what we're primarily encouraging our participants to take on more and more. One of the examples would be in my own life, I can see my own skills getting better. When I started to grow my team last year, one of the women who started, she comes from outside of Canada and she speaks English very well. And nonetheless, because of the differences in the way that we communicate and the way that we think, sometimes it takes a while for me to understand what she's trying to tell me and vice versa. So we had this file we were working on together and she's an expert in preparing the immigration files. I lean on her a lot. So she brings to me, oh, take a look at this area. She makes a suggestion and she was trying to explain what's the thing here that is missing. And I said, I'm not following you. Can you say that again? She said it again. I said, I hear the words that you're saying, but the significance, I'm missing it. It was like six or eight times <laughs> that we had to go back and forth. But because we had the common goal of making the client's file awesome, and both of us have a goal of working together in the long run, we had the resilience and patience to tell me one more time. <laughs> and I wasn't I always imagine that. <laughs> I wasn't always that patient, I think, yeah. because of paying attention to that work, I'm getting better at it myself. Yeah. And I can think of a success example with some of our corporate groups that we do. One of the participants in a group that we were working with over a long period of time, he said this thing in a training session that was a light bulb moment. He said, so if I have this skill level and I'm writing the policy for my organization, my biases or my mindset is reflected in the policies that I write. It's a beautiful example of the importance of the self-work, oh. especially at the leadership level. That story you mentioned about your colleague trying to express something to you and having to repeat it several times before you were on the same page, it reminded me, in fact, I was thinking about this as you were telling me the story, it reminded me how over the course of my life, I've tried to have meaningful conversations with my own parents. You know, we take certain things for granted in life that you can sit down and have a conversation with your mom or your dad. We just assume that this is something you can do. Like, why wouldn't you be able to do it? Assuming your parents are alive or that you know them or whatever. You know them and they're in your life. You should be able to talk to them and have a conversation. But you don't take it for granted when that's not the context you grow up in. Right? My dad's English skills are significantly superior to my mom's. So I'm able to have long, more complex conversations with him about things that are going on in my life, things that I plan to do later, the risks and potential benefits of decisions I'm facing. But I can't have those conversations with my mom because when I describe these things using sort of everyday English that you or I would use or Tracy would use, the message doesn't land. And then when she tries to express herself to me, like I don't understand what she's trying to say. And it's disappointing because you're kind of being deprived of what is, like I mentioned a moment ago, something that most people just take for granted, right? Like an aspect of your life that should just be a given. But when you don't have it, you do notice what is missing. So it's unfortunate, but people will have these differences. So I think it's even more curious and it's even more fascinating fascinating when it happens inside of a family, right? Because it's one thing for two adults who come from different worlds to have a communication gap. Completely different thing to have within your own immediate family, purely because you were born and raised in two different countries, to have that gap with one another is what it is. 
35. I'm over it. <laughs> it's been a long time. I've accepted it. <laughs> That's a great example of intersecting identities. Yeah. Your mom has this complex collection of her identities and you've got yours. Yeah. And some of them are on such different wavelengths. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how often you see that in your work, but you know, you obviously deal with a lot of newcomers and people from different parts of the world. So you'll eventually see examples of families that go through a culture shock inside the family. It usually takes decades to play out because once you're a fully grown adult, your parents are saying they're like, we don't even recognize you. And it's like, well, of course you don't because you were raised in your country and I was raised here. <laughs> but anyway, it's part of what makes Canada an interesting place to be. Very few countries have this kind of diversity and immigration levels that we have. I think it, overall it's a good thing. It enriches us as a community. I think it enriches us and it's also a challenge nonetheless. Yeah. You have to work at it. It doesn't just solve itself. You put a bunch of people from different places together. They don't just all get along. Yeah, it or understand each other. It needs to be facilitated. Right? Yeah, I agree. And that's where your line of work comes in with the training and the immigration consulting and all that stuff. It's more than just immigration paperwork from what I'm hearing throughout the course of this conversation. One of my good friends just got her Canadian citizenship recently. Oh, wow. And so we've had some interesting conversations. She shared with me that she doesn't know what to call herself now. <laughs> like I can say I'm Canadian, but I don't feel Canadian, but I technically am. Imagine that significant piece of your identity just gets changed. I observed her ceremony and it was kind of interesting to watch. I've never seen one of those. Like, what is, what is that like a Canadian now. citizenship ceremony look like? It's quite regimented. I think it's a standardized process. They have a speaker, they have an officer who completes all the paperwork. And actually the one that I watched, the speaker had a really nice message about opportunity and self-development. It was quite a TED Talk type of feeling to it. And then everybody said their oath together. And then everybody sang the national anthem in English. And then they sang it in French. And my friend was so cute. She started off strong in the French one and then she just trailed off. I would not be able to do the French one. <laughs> I have no problem saying that <laughs> on social media. I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> I've lived so here my cute. whole life. <laughs> she gave it a good try. <laughs> so did everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. They used to do them. Maybe they do in some cases. I'm not too sure. I attended one in person back before COVID and it was quite a special experience for those people attending. They had a Mountie and an official feeling to the whole thing. And you have your family there. Everyone's clapping for you. I think there might be something lost in the online version, but I bet it's administratively a bit simpler. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. People ask me questions on the show all the time. What's your your particular interest in the cultural diversity dynamic in Sault Ste. Marie? That's a good one. I feel like my primary concern about the community in which I now live is its economic growth. And like you mentioned earlier in this episode, economic growth oftentimes has a lot to do with outside investment. Take, for example, Tracy and I went out to dinner recently to a faux restaurant. And when I got there, I was like, I recognize this place. I've been here before. At least I've been to this building before, not this restaurant, because the last time I was at this building, it was an Italian restaurant. I and I don't know which one it was. There's lots of Italian restaurants around. I just know that it, that's what it was. So I guess the owner had sold it and it went from being an Italian restaurant to a faux restaurant. And it seemed a lot busier than when it was an Italian restaurant. So I was like, okay, so people are taking really well to this. People want more diversity in the products and services that they can buy in this economy. Now, of course, diversity in restaurants is a very simplistic example. There's a lot of ways that you can get outside investment to grow an economy. I do think that the more cultural diversity you have, the more of an opportunity there is for economic 
economic growth. Now, why do I believe that? I have seen that, unfortunately, the education system in Northern Ontario doesn't necessarily keep up with competing education systems in other parts of the world. If people coming to Sault Ste. Marie with a vastly different experience of their education in their home country than what they would have received if they had come to Northern Ontario. It's easy to assume that because this is Canada and because this is Ontario, your education is going to be amongst the best in the world. But what I've seen is the opposite, unfortunately. And that's not me sitting here saying harsh things about Canada or Ontario or Northern Ontario. It's pointing out a reality. Because we have this big difference in quality in education, the skills that people have are very different. You might have people who are, because they come from an educational system outside of this country, they may be more suited to highly complex, highly intellectual, highly challenging jobs, medicine, engineering, software engineering, creative type professions that require a certain level of training and preparation from a young age. When I was in high school, they were already teaching us, again, to be clear, I went to high school in Richmond Hill, Ontario. I did not go to high school in another country. I was born and raised here, but I was learning how to code, literally computer code. I was learning how to make web applications at the age of 15 in Richmond Hill, Ontario, because that school was very well funded and had teachers who could teach that sort of thing. Personally, I don't think that that kind of level of education is available here in Northern Ontario. I've personally never heard of coding classes being done at a place like CAS or whatever. So you're getting a workforce that is capable of doing a lot more than what the local workforce is capable of doing here. Not because there's something lacking in the people who live here. There's something lacking in the infrastructure and the investment in the education system. That's a government problem. The government needs to do something about that. You shouldn't be faced with a choice where the only way that you can get an excellent education preparing you for a modern world is in either private school or some faraway land where the standards are better. You should have more choice than that. And it's an unfortunate reality of what we're faced with out here. And I'll repeat myself and say, I don't think it's a particularly cynical or pessimistic worldview. I just think it's pointing out, this is the economic problem we're facing. This is the economic solution. If there's not enough skills that's being taught to the young generation to prepare them to be productive, high-skilled workers, that needs to be fixed. That's just a math problem to me. That's my sort of perspective on how cultural diversity can enrich the local economy in that sense with a highly skilled and highly diverse workforce, not just diversity of culture, but diversity of educational backgrounds that you can't necessarily access here in Northern Ontario. That's one thing. I also find that even just within Canada and within Ontario, you see a lot of cultural division between Canadians. I'm not talking about new Canadians. I'm not talking about newcomers. I'm talking about people who are born and raised in this country. There's still cultural division between them. And it's a bit of a shame. I've seen it my whole life, especially growing up. I spent a number of years in my childhood in Nova Scotia. I saw it there. And there's a lot of commonalities between a small town Nova Scotia environment and a small town Ontario environment. The cultures are very similar. I find that within Canada, there's unfortunately certain levels of tension between the descendants of European settlers versus Aboriginal communities versus the children of immigrants. I'm a first generation Canadian because my parents were not born in this country. And I heard of a sociological phenomenon that anyone with a phone could just grab and Google this right now. I'm not making it up. There's this sociological phenomenon called the third culture. And the third culture talks about how a first generation American or a first generation Canadian will experience certain things in their life socioculturally that puts them as an outsider in both camps, so to speak. They can't really relate to the country of their parents' birth because they don't speak the language and they don't believe in the same cultural values. But at the same time, they can't really relate to what you would refer to as the dominant culture, the communities of people who live here who have white privilege and stuff like that. Can't really relate to them either because you're just not part of that team. Sorry. So you don't fall into either. You fall into a third space and you can try to live in both worlds. You can try to have social connections that come from one camp or the other camp. It's a learned skill, I think. But the longer you live, the better you are at doing it. So the theory goes that third culture children, third culture generations 
populations generally find the most sense of belonging with each other. They kind of form their own tribe and their own camp. So when I think about a place like Sault Ste. Marie, I think about how you have all of these different camps sort of living together, right? You have a large, robust population of Aboriginal people. You have a large population of descendants of European settlers. You have a large population of children of immigrants. And you have a large population of people who just got here last week, all living in a small town together. And it's very fascinating to see how they all interact with each other. And I imagine you see it at a much more everyday level than I would because we have different lines of work. But I think about these things sometimes. And <laughs> for my own mental health, I try not to. <laughs> That's my very long answer to your relatively short question. But it was a question that had a lot of layers to it. I think you have a better insight of how I think about these things now. And so do our viewers. <laughs> I can see those different layers of culture yeah. that you're describing. And isn't belonging what we're seeking most of the time subconsciously? So imagine the stress when one doesn't belong. It's a right. pretty big stress. It's a pretty primitive inclination. Oh yeah. We need it for survival. Our cavemen old brains think. For like, sure. Oh, well, yeah. probably our modern brains think that too. I've been doing a little experimenting with how to help make the bridge between immediate newcomer groups and those who have been here at least a few generations, like local Siouxites, let's say, or yeah. those who have called the Sioux their home already. And it goes over with moderate degrees of effectiveness, depending on who's involved and how willing they are. But I'm really looking for ways always to like just create a little connection to bring those groups together. It's like you can't expect it's going to be a perfect mix of everybody having equal attention to my culture and the other's cultures. <laughs> yeah. But small moments create learning, create new thinking. Like it kind of expands from there. So we do a few things like a French night where once a month, mostly we're Anglophones, but we have a at least intermediate level of French and we just get together and speak French all night imperfectly as we like. I've tried also inviting newcomers with me to come out to public events to help say, oh, here's so-and-so. I'm always looking for ways to do that better, do it more, spread that practice, because I think that's coming back to one of your earlier questions, one of the things that the community can do, which involves the person with more power saying, come with me, we're going to do this together. There's so much to do, like it's infinite yeah. what can be done to help somebody who doesn't belong feel like they belong. Oh yeah. One of the most enjoyable nights out on the town that I had just after I moved here was this, I forget the name of the event, but it was like a celebration of Hispanic culture. And it was just so well attended. It was at the Delta Hotel. It was in their biggest conference room. Every seat in the house was taken. The meals were amazing. The police chief was there. Politicians were there. Influential people. I think Asima Vizina, the president of Algoma, she spoke briefly at the event. And it made me feel so proud to be in a small community that took so much joy in other people's cultural ways of celebrating their lives. I felt really good. And I think that there's definitely so much more good in the community than bad. It's just that sometimes the bad are speaking loudly. They're the ones that tend to post most on social media. They're the ones that tend to be the most in your face. Whereas all the positivity and the good, that kind of flies under the radar. You have to kind of find it, go out to these events and get social and find out all the positive energy that's out there in the community. Because I certainly saw it very, very shortly after I moved here and it made me feel great. And I decided to stay instead of just like heading back to the GTA. It's a great success story for yeah, the community. That is a great success story. Yeah. I appreciate your point that the large amount of tension goes toward those who are unhappy about the diversification of the community. With humility, so many beautiful things are happening. Yeah. Why can't we put more focus on that and less on the negative stuff? Yeah. I think people just need to see it, right? Like it's part of my motivation for creating a podcast is you're putting content out there that's Sault Ste. Marie focused, that's specific to a small town, a relatively small community. And there's a platform for locals to talk about their experiences. And I've seen such a vast 
vast difference in all the experiences appear on this show, right? Like you're the first person to appear on the show to speak so deeply on the cultural development of the city from the perspective of diversity and inclusion. We've had totally different topics come across, like our mutual contact, mutual friend who introduced me to you, actually, Carson from the Millwork Center. So when Carson was here, he was talking about this food charity that he was a part of that redistributed food that was just not being purchased, redistributing that to the community. I thought that was really cool. We had other guests who talked about economic development, economic growth. We had people talk about mental health and addiction. So part of the mission in creating this content is you're really showing a different side of the Sioux to the people that live here who actually care about it. It was never created with the intention of having like a million followers because a million people don't live here. It was sort of like a small community resource where people who are interested in learning about people who live here, people who are making a difference in the community, people who have something to say. Well, now you have a place that you can connect with them. And our viewers have now had that opportunity to do that with you. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for the cool opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine for you as somebody who's newer to Sault Ste. Marie, that it has expediated the process of networking in the community. Oh, for sure. Yeah, unequivocally. Awesome. When I was first inviting guests on the show, I was reaching out to people saying, hey, I have this concept. I think it would be cool. I don't know of anything quite like it. What do you think? Do you want to be on the show? And by and large, the response was positive. People were like, yeah, that's cool. I'll be on the show. Some people were like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, I haven't heard a single episode. I'm like, that's because it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> and they're like, no. Maybe publish some episodes and then I'll think about it. So that was some of the response I got. But at some point it became sort of like referrals. People who are on the show were like, you really need to interview so-and-so. I'm like, okay, <laughs> so why not? And they'll send out some emails and then, well, you know the process. You went through it. There you go. That's, I got a guy for you. That's awesome. There you go. We got another guest. <laughs> yeah. People would ask me, like, what's the criteria? You just have to be local, be in the Sioux and have something interesting to say. It's narrow, but it's broad at the same time. I could see the platform as a great opportunity to expose the voices of newly arrived newcomers. Yes. I love the opportunity that is in that. Yeah, I agree. There was a business owner, this restaurant that we go to a lot, fast food restaurant. We should have them on the show. Yeah, my favorite taco place. Yeah, Quesada. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm like 99% sure like it's owned by newcomers, newcomers to Canada. And I'm like, if you could just tell me your entrepreneurial journey of not only moving countries and starting a business, and it seems like their business is doing really well too. Yeah. I find stuff like that so inspirational because I'm privileged to have been able to lead a career that is very consistent with what I went to school for. Most people who go to business school or get an economics degree, maybe they start their own business. Maybe they don't. Maybe they work somewhere for their whole career and then retire. But I got to start my own and I thought it was so cool. And I always like talking to other business owners, you included. I know the focus of this interview has been more so the cultural fabric of the community and less so on the entrepreneurship side of being a CEO and, and being a founder. But you're more than welcome to talk about it if you want. It's an empowering experience, sure. And I think of the courage of somebody who takes their entire family and their dogs and they land in Sault Ste. Marie in a totally new place. How much courage that takes and how much they grow in the process. How many unknown things they have to figure out in a stretch of two or three or four or five years. There's somehow a parallel that I feel I'm going through the same philosophical experience of challenge as some of my clients because I feel there's so many unknown things just on the horizon for me as somebody who doesn't have a background in business. But I'm sorting out my way, finding out how to take the next step when it's time to take it. And there's okayness with the unknown that one has to have. Same thing for an immigrant when they come. They have to be okay with, I don't know exactly how this is going to go, but I'm giving it a try because I believe in it, right? Well, it seems like your business has grown quite a bit. Like you started out at the Millwork Center and when I was getting my own tour of the Millwork Center, I actually saw your office there and your team at work and they had mentioned that your company had plans to move to a larger space and sort of outgrow the Millwork Center. And then later on, some whatever it was, weeks or months later, when I was exchanging 
emails with you. I was like, oh, it looks like you have a new office. Like it's on Albert Street and I assume it's much bigger than the last one. So you're obviously doing something right. That's working out well, which is even more inspirational in the context where we see so many businesses in Sault Ste. Marie going out of business. You see these boarded up shops and you see just long stretches of streets in the Sioux where retail storefronts are just closing down permanently. But it seems like your company is going the opposite direction, which is awesome. Thanks for that acknowledgement. <laughs> There's a element that we're bringing in in the next six months that's like the final piece of the plan to grow the business. And it involves recruiting foreign workers, creating the link between jobs and foreign workers. I'm working on it behind the scenes nice. in order to kind of launch that last final piece so that the collection of services is complete. So that's in the works. That's really exciting. It is exciting. It seems like so many jobs available that can't get filled. And there's so many people who want to come and fill them. That's just it. I talk to business owners. I talk to contractors who are looking to get subcontractors and stuff. And that seems to be a theme amongst all the business owners I've spoken to. It's like, how do we find the right people to fill these positions? To some extent, I found my experience as a business owner a little bit different. I would post a job, whatever it was for, whether it was for a client service representative to sit at the front desk and greet people and answer the phone, or it was for like bookkeeping or even junior associate lawyers. We would generally have just an overwhelming volume of applicants. I also think that's something that's specific to the GTA. It's just got such a high concentration of people and it could probably do with less and they could just branch out to other parts of Ontario and see what's there. But for one reason, or the other people sort of concentrate over there and it's the opposite problem down there. At least that was my experience of it. I found that you open a position and now you're faced with 250 candidates for one job and it almost makes you sad. You're like, ah, oh, you know, like if I had a billion dollars sitting around, maybe I could create jobs for these 250 people who obviously need them. That's just the reality of the economy right now. But yeah. It's a different can of worms around here. It's a different can of worms around here. Yeah. The more I talk to Tracy about it, I'm like, well, why don't we start this thing? Like every other day of the week, I'm like, I've got this new idea. And she's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we are working on some stuff right now. We were building some web applications and stuff together. I'll talk more about that later in a more public way once it's actually off the ground. But it seems that like digital media and tech and stuff is more of our thing. And we've been doing really well in that space, I think, so far. It hasn't even been that long. Power couple, like I said, <laughs> all the way. Do you have a power couple name? No, we don't. I guess, well, we did some of those drone videos yep. for real estate listings and stuff. And we put a little logo that said Kini Alberta Media. Yeah. Because we just need to come up with a name for like the splash screen at <laughs> the beginning of the video. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. <laughs> Cute. There is something else I want to bring into the mix. Okay. Is it something personal for me that's unsettled and I'm just working through it, but I believe that there are lots of other people perhaps having the same process happening. The work that we do in immigration, it can be considered counter to efforts that are being put in place like the Truth and Reconciliation Initiative. Like one type of immigration, so to speak, arrived in this country as a military colonizing force with complete technological dominance over the local indigenous population. And that dominance was used for war and violence. That's quite different from today's immigration where you have a highly structured, highly rules-based system of governance of law enforcement and economy and jurisprudence that is accepting immigrants into the country based on a highly structured methodology, right? People who are coming to the country today are not arriving on the shores as invaders. They're being permitted in by a dominant infrastructure that will continue to maintain power in the region with or without these new 
Canadians arriving from whatever part of the world. I think the historical context is very different between what immigration looks like today and what quote-unquote immigration was 150 years ago. That's how I would put that, but I don't know to what extent. Again, I'm not a historian. I don't have a PhD, but if you're asking me a personal question about like how do I reconcile my feelings about maybe more and more and more immigration is inherently antithetical to respecting the rights of the indigenous population, it's not the same immigration. It's very, very different from what it looked like when European settlers arrived in this country. I don't know if that's any consolation for the personal journey that you're on, but that's how I would look at it. So many layers there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciated your point about the intentionality of the immigration that happened when Canada was settled by European forces. And I bet you a lot of the families who came at that time were coming with the same family-centered intentions. They took up the land and started their farms. They weren't necessarily thinking, I want to take over this country. They just wanted a good future for their kids. Right. Which I think is a similar journey to a family coming now from Brazil to Sault Ste. Marie. Yes, of course. But the military context is in there, but I think that everyday person's experiences, there's some similarity in what's the intention, right? For sure. Why does anyone go anywhere, right? Like when Tracy and I talk about maybe Canada's not the final plan, right? Like, sure, we're from here, but maybe America has something better to offer. Maybe somewhere in Europe, maybe South America. When we're thinking about these things, we're talking about building a better life. And what does a better life look like? Okay, access to healthcare, access to great education for a future family, access to more affordable housing, maybe for the same price, you can live in a house that's two or three times more glamorous than what you pay for a relatively more modest house here in Canada. Like all these different things. People want a certain social standard of living, cultural standard of living, economic standard of living, healthcare standard of living. And if it's the case that wherever you are can't provide that because of the conditions in that country, then yeah, you're going to look for it in another country. And I think a lot of Canadians are now thinking that way for better or for worse. And we've certainly thought about it. And it's Canadians who are in all income levels, right? Like we fortunately, um, grateful to say, done very well, but still, you know, I think there's something missing and maybe it's just eight years of Justin Trudeau or whatever, but like, (laughs) we'll see. We'll see what the next couple of decades has in store for this country, depending on how the next election goes or whatever. I'm hearing this from you a few times and I think, you know what, that's not what I experience in my world at all because I'm (laughs) spending most of my time helping people to come here. Right. Don't think about that often. I think about going to enjoy places to learn something new, expand my mind, but I don't think about living in another country permanently. Oh my gosh. If you look at the trends, like there's this real estate website in Mexico called farhomes.com. They published a report saying that permanent residence visas being granted by the Mexican government to Canadians has increased by four times since 2020. Like more and more and more Canadians are choosing to live in either South America or America because of what has happened here in terms of unaffordability, unaffordability of housing, groceries, gas, everything. And it's not the Canada that I recognize that I've lived in my whole life. But at the same time, I don't want to spend my days being a cynic 24-7. I'd rather focus on, okay, well, how can I just pursue a better life for me and my family and then just go from there? And that better life, defining that for yourself clearly, oh, that's everybody's right. Yeah. Oh, what does that mean to you versus what does that mean to somebody else? And then, great, can head in that direction. But having the clear goal is part of the journey becoming so meaningful. Like a measure of progress when we know what we're aiming for. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And to have that freedom, to have the economic freedom to be able to just do that. I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to just up and leave, but they can't afford to do it financially. There's different kinds of privilege out there. I'll say it that way. During this episode, you brought up the issue of white privilege, but there's lots of privileges. You know, there's male privilege, there's wealth privilege, financial privilege. Every kind of privilege opens up doors that are not available to other people. Like you said, you've had certain doors open up for you because of white privilege. I've been treated a certain advantageous way as a male in the corporate world. And I imagine both of us enjoy a certain level of wealth privilege, having been 
been able to own our own businesses and employ others and that kind of thing. So it's important to acknowledge those things. We'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't. And it feels good yeah. to celebrate those things which are right there. Yeah. Feel good more of the time. <laughs> I follow a thought leader who her phrase is now jingle in my head because I've been consuming her material for a long time. And one of her things is feel good more of the time. Your life will get better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just do it. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> that makes me think about the importance of just being grateful for what you have. A lot of people think that happiness is a certain kind of house, a certain kind of car, a certain income level, living in maybe in a specific city that they want to live in. But generally speaking, I feel like probably the single biggest, and the empirical data is there to support it, probably the single biggest contributing factor in your happiness and mental health is the quality of your relationship with your partner. And that is something we have. <laughs> My life was significantly worse before I met Tracy. So I'm grateful for that. And the city we live in, the house we have, the cars we have parked outside, that's secondary to me. It's not something I think about all the time. We're certainly going to seize opportunities to have a more comfortable life if that's something we want to pursue, but it's not the most important thing to us. I can tell that you're telling the truth. You want to know why? <laughs> How? Because you're trained to get inside people's heads? Yes. <laughs> no, because when you look toward the window where the cars are parked versus looking towards Tracy, you look warmly in her direction. Oh, less, yeah. Less so to the cars. Not that you don't enjoy yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I did do that. <laughs> and the cameras don't lie, so people can go back and check if I did that. <laughs> That's very observant. You make a good lawyer, actually. <laughs> no, thanks. I'll pass. Jennifer, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. I think we talked about a lot of things that I feel are super relevant to Sioux Whites. We're talking about the cultural fabric of this small town and to some extent what's happening in Canada across the country with immigration and housing prices and stuff. But people tune into the show to have a deeper connection with their local community here in the Sioux. And I feel like that's something that we really did today. And I'm grateful that you were able to come here and, and do that for our audience. Thank you for that. It's my pleasure. It's fundamentally something I believe in. Make space for more conversations that are a little vulnerable. Usually that serves everybody. It's a precious thing. Do more of that. We should all do more of that. I feel like we will do more of that. You're welcome to to come back on the show again in the future when you have some more stories you want to share your oh, business really? has grown <laughs> we got the time the studio is going to be here <laughs> and what you've done with this platform is created opportunities like you said for sue whites to connect with others and learn about what great stuff is happening in the community but in addition that affirmation that happens when somebody says i want to hear you that's fundamentally satisfying and that's part of i want to loop back to one of the first questions you asked about what can we do to make sue saint marie more welcoming that's it that's it ask people about themselves Talk to people. Yeah. Done. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com.